Well, we're, uh, I think, this is a rare sentence to utter in this class, I think we're going to finish a book today. So that's uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and then transition, uh, Lord willing, into 2 Thessalonians. I want to pick up with verse 19. Last week we stressed the three uh, very short, pithy uh, commands that he says, this is the will of God for you. To rejoice, always pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all things. We spent a lot of time on those three last week. Then continuing in verse 19, he says, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, on the board, I wrote a couple of things, because this needs to be... Um, by this, I mean these verses need to be connected uh, the way they're connected grammatically. And in English, it isn't always e easy to see the connection. So, uh, let's see. I think you can all see this. Um, I have a Holy, the Holy Spirit. I want to make a couple of comments about these verses. And the command, do not quench. And then how these two are connected to this. Okay? So... Let's first of all just uh, talk a minute about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I'm assuming, uh, how do I say this? I'm assuming this isn't the first time you've ever heard of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming you have an understanding that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Son. Our God is a God that is Trinity, three in one. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, we receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. So in other words, the, and this is very clear in the New Testament, the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, one of the very first things that happens to you is the Holy Spirit takes up residence within you. Now that is, that's a, in one sense, that's very hard to understand, but in another sense, it's not. Because this is a fulfillment of a promise that God made in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and many other places, that he would put his spirit in our hearts. That the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, indwells us. In effect, we become, and this is the language of the scriptures, we become the new temple of God. And that is a profound, earth-shaking concept. But that's true. That's what the scriptures teach. Secondly, is Ephesians 5.18, where the it's a, it's a command, but it's from the Apostle Paul as well, that we are to be under the Spirit's control. Language he uses, we are to be filled with the Spirit. In other words, this refers to our position as it relates to the Spirit. This refers to our the practice of our lives, you know, how we live our lives in relation to the Spirit. He indwells us. We are the new temple of the living God. And our responsibility then is to allow Him to fill us, to control us, to live a Spirit-controlled life. That part of what we look at in this passage that we're studying right now is an example of what that means. <clears throat> so, um, this is a review. This we some of this we've talked about before, but is this clear to you? Does anybody have any questions about that? Because if you don't understand 
this basic teaching from the New Testament, then you don't understand what Paul is saying here, why he's giving this command. So if you understand this, then the command that he's issuing in the passage that we're studying this morning makes sense. So any questions about this? Is a review, but it's like pneumatology 101. Pneumatology is the theology of the Holy Spirit 101. I just summarized it. So, you know, let it distill down, sink deep down, and percolate up as questions. Hope you figured out that metaphor there. But anyway. <laughs> you with me? Do I need to clarify any of that? Okay. It's just a basic review, but this is the basic role and relationship of the Spirit if you put your faith in Christ. So, he says here in, in the verse that I read in the passage we're studying, do not quench. Now, quench is, um, that's not a word we use a lot, but it's certainly not a hard word to understand. It's translating a Greek term, but quench, what is quench? What does that bring to mind? Quench something. Put out something. What did you say? Probably not. To quench something. Like, what do you use to put out? Like, if you quench a fire... You're trying to put out the fire, right? Or if you quench the feelings of somebody, someone or you're, even yourself, you're trying to suppress those. So to quench the spirit, the spirit is compared in the Bible, to, as a figure of speech, to the fire. On the day of Pentecost, you know, the flames of fire, you know, the, the, that wonderful passage where the spirit of, of God comes. Um, if you look at the rest of the passage, which I tried to put on the diagram up here, he chooses two ways in which we can quench the Spirit's work in our lives. This is not exhaustive. But these are two ways in which we can quench the Spirit. So let's think about that just a little bit more. The Holy Spirit's in our life. He indwells us. And there is nothing we can do that is going to cause him to not dwell indwell us. That's part of our relationship with the living God. But for him to be effective in helping transform us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can't fight him. We have to submit to him. We can't push him away we have to accept and embrace and realize that his presence in my life is one of the most important aspects of me being a child of God. So, what I've been saying, does that make sense? It either does make sense or it doesn't make sense. So I'm, I'm seeing the body language that indicates sort of you're with me. So to quench means... I'm kind of suppressing or putting out or dousing or not allowing the benefit of the Spirit's dwelling in my life to be maximized. And the first one he says, because that's why in my Bible what it has to put, do not quench the Spirit, and I have a colon. You know what a colon is. Two dots, one on top of the other. You know what a colon is in, in, in written language? There are two ways in which you can do that. There are many ways in which you can do it. But one, he says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Now, what I did up here, 
not quench the Holy Spirit, which I can do by rejecting prophetic words. I'm kind of just fleshing that out a little bit. In the New Testament, when you see the word prophecies or prophet, don't think necessarily that Jeremiah in a sackcloth is going to show up and start preaching fire and brimstone. I don't know if you're following what I'm, I'm trying to... But the pro- prophecy or prophetic words are, are those that are taught that are in conformity with God's word, God's revelation. Do you understand what I mean? In other words, I can't say to Dave... Um, I'm going to tell you, Dave, exactly what's going to happen to you tomorrow. If I would start saying that to him, what do you think the odds are, just humanly speaking, that he'd believe what I'm about to say? He would say I'm a lunatic. He wouldn't trust what I'm going to say. But if I say to him, Dave, we have been studying verse 16 and 17, and I know what the will of God is for your life. And Dave's going to look, you do? I'm going to say, yeah, it's that you rejoice always, that you pray without ceasing, and you give thanks and everything. That's the will of God, because that's just what this verse told us last week. This is God's will for you. How do I know that? Because the Bible told me so. So I can say that to Dave. Dave, you're struggling with the issues of the will of God. I'm going to tell you, I know, I know what the will of God is to some extent. I already know it. You do? What is it? That you are to pray without ceasing. That you're to rejoice in all things and you have a thankful spirit. That's the way I'm supposed to live. Yeah, how do you know that? Because 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17 tells you that. He says in another place, the will of God for your life is that you be sanctified. Okay, how do you know that? Because that's what the Bible says. So quenching the Holy Spirit is rejecting what God has explained to you. That's not hard to understand that. And then he says, test things. So if I said to Dave, he's going to be regretful that he sat to my right hand because I keep using him as an example. But if I said to Dave, Dave, I know what the will of God is, that you pray without ceasing. So those three things. And Dave says, I don't believe you. I said, okay, when you go home, look up 1 Corinthians 5, 16, he's just tested it. He's just checked it out. Eklund was right. In effect, he's saying, God was right, because that's what he's told me. You follow what I'm saying? When you start putting this, these are very uncomfortable. There's this leg here, there's two of them, and I keep running into them. So quenching, putting out the work of the Spirit in your life, you can do that by rejecting prophetic words that are in conformity with God's revelation to us. So if I stand up here and tell you, you know, we're in a men's retreat, and I'm speaking on to you just as men, and I'm talking about the kind of lifestyle that God is calling you to live, and you're co- taking copious notes, and you say, this, this, this is resonating with me, I like what I'm hearing, but I'm going to go home. And I'm going to take all those passages that Ekman shared with me. 
And I'm going to open my Bible and I'm going to check it out. I'm going to test it. You follow me? That's what this passage, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching now, I'm sorry. I'll sit down and get calm. That, that is what this passage is saying to us. You can quench, put out, suppress the Spirit's work in your life if you reject prophetic words that are in conformity with God's word, and you know that because you've checked it out. Uh, you have some people who, who say, you know, I believe this part of the Bible, but I don't really believe this other part of the Bible. And you have others that say, I get this, but I really don't get this, this other part. I don't, I don't understand what it means and what I'm to do about it. So, um, how, can you speak to that? Because I, I hear that, and I'm sure you guys do too, every day. I mean, uh, someone says, I don't believe a just or a holy God, a loving God would send anybody to hell. I just don't, I just don't think that. And, and then there's other people who say, I don't get maybe what we're talking about today. I don't get the quenching. Mm. What's the difference? I mean, that you would say that would help us to understand the difference and address those individuals that we encounter. Well, you use two very good examples of, of teachings from the Word of God that people either reject or accept. I think. There are two things, and I'm not punting on this, but there are two things I think that are really um, important about this whole process of Bible study and understanding what God has revealed. It's Again, it's the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. It is the Holy Spirit that helps us to understand and open up our heart and embrace the truth that's there. But if we go into this, Fred, if our approach to God's word and our approach to those whom God is using to help me teach and understand God's word, if we keep rejecting and say, I don't care what it says, I'm not going to accept it. Take the example of that God is a just God and God will hold people accountable. That teaching is all over the scriptures. It starts in Genesis 3 and it goes all the way to Revelation 21. Because 22 is about to new heaven, new earth, totally. But what I'm saying is that's there, Okay. You either begin to understand that is part of the character and nature of God, that he holds people accountable for their actions. That we do not live in a morally neutral universe. We live in a universe that is created by a living God who has the right as our creator to set the standards to paint the lines in the discourse. And if you choose not to do that, there's a consequence. That is a fundamental teaching. But if a person keeps saying, well, I like the fact that God is a God of love, but I don't like the fact that God is also a God of justice. And the response to that is, you can't just have a God of love. Because if you have a God who just loves, and he's not a God of justice, that love is meaningless. That is meaningless love. If your child says, Daddy, I will only love you if you let me do everything I want to do. I don't care what the standards are. That's not love. A father says to his child, I love you. I brought you into this world. I have the responsibility to care for you. I will do everything I possibly can to help you have a purpose-filled, meaningful life. 
But for you to have a purpose-filled, meaningful life, it doesn't mean you can just do whatever you want. But Daddy, I want to go out and play in traffic in the middle of I-80. I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to do that. Because I love you, and that's life. I'm making stupid examples, but that's what I mean. Love without obedience is meaningless. That's not love. And love without justice is meaningless. So I, what I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give that full orb presentation of who God is. You can't have a God that you say just God loves and God isn't just. That's, that's not God, and that's not a meaningful universe. And that is not how you treat your children. That is not how you raise your children. You don't raise your children just on the basis of love. You follow what I'm saying? So a person like that say, I'm going to pick and choose what I want to believe about God. I'm sorry you don't have that option. Now, I will do everything I can to try, through the word of God to explain to you who God is. But ultimately, you have to accept it. If you reject it, you are quenching the Spirit's work in your life. There's a difference between defiance and rejection and teachableness. Teachableness means, well, I still don't get this. But I'm not going to reject it. I'm still processing and thinking about this. I mean, there's stuff I've been, I mean, I've been studying this stuff for decades. It's still, I still don't get a lot of this. I mean, I know. I still, you know, I still, okay, I, it's taught there. It's still hard for me to really get my arms around it. So it's, the, it's the, the approach we take to it. He is saying, do not despise. That's not a positive word, is it? Don't despise prophecies. The prophetic word of God that somebody is teaching you, and then you go home and check it out to make sure what they're saying isn't conforming with God's word. And if you go back to the book of Acts, it's, uh, I think it's about 17, it says... No, it's not 17. I think it's 18. It says of the Bereans. That's what the Berea, the little town of Berea was near Thessalonica. They'd hear Paul preach, and you know what they did? They'd go home and check it out. I don't know if he's really telling me the truth. So they took out their word, the Old Testament and so on, checked out what Paul was saying. It's right. He's right. That's why some, sometimes you have a Sunday school class called the Berean class. Because that means that class listens to the sermon of the pre uh, preacher one Sunday morning, and in the next Sunday school class, they take the entire Sunday school hour and check out everything the pastor said. I just made that up. That's not true. <laughs> okay. All right, now that's, that's the answer, okay? What's the difference between, this sounds to me more like verification than it does prophecy. So I, I always thought of prophecy as being concerning kind of future events. It, it is used two ways, John, in the scriptures. It is used of predicting the future, of future events, but it's also declaring truth that's already been revealed. Follow me? And, and it, that's why in verse 21, do not despise prophecies, but test them. Hear what somebody is saying about God and about his word, but test it. Go home and check it out. So it's, it's that, that's what I said in response to Fred's question. It's having that teachable spirit. I'm open. My mind is open. My heart is open to listen. My, my hope is, it's the reason I teach these kinds of things, my hope is you have a teachable spirit. 
that you're here to learn about God and learn about his word so that it affects your life. So you're here with a teachable spirit. You're not coming into this room despising the word of God. And if you're despising the word of God, you probably shouldn't come. You know, I mean, I'm not going to push you out the door, but your attitude is, you know, it's such a defiance. I don't care what the word of God, I don't care what you say the word of God says, I'm not going to listen. Well, then don't come. Go get a Starbucks coffee. Well, just kind of piggybacking on that, though, it doesn't, I mean, a teachable spirit doesn't mean a, a permissive or a noble spirit. No. No. If you do hear something and it doesn't check with what you've read or what you know, mm-hmm then you have every right to call it into question. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Because that teachableness means I'm open to it. But as I check it out and I find that is not what God's word say. And that's not despising. That's right. That's, not, that's right. That's why the, the word test, that, that verb test is a very important word. It means you, you know, what I said, you're checking out what has been said. And that's why, you know, if you if you think what I'm teaching isn't correct, you know, take some other books out or talk to your pastor or whatever. It's just, it's just I, I mean, in a, in a cult environment, yeah. what happens. Yeah, right? yeah. Those, don't those question. Followers don't question. Don't question. That's right. That's a, uh, Joel, that's really a good comment. In a typical cultish or very uh, controlling environment, the leader doesn't want you to check it out. The leader doesn't want you to test what he's saying. Just accept what I'm saying, period. No, that's... Now, again, I, I, not, to, not to camp too hard on this, but we have to be really careful because I believe what I'm teaching from God's Word is the truth. But don't be ever, ever afraid to question it. I mean that. God wants, I believe strongly... That God wants us to have the capacity to verify what's being said. Test it. Check it out. That's The Bible just said, we just read about it. It's not saying accept what any of your teachers say without question. It doesn't say that. It says test it. And as I mentioned earlier in the book of Acts, the Bereans are held up. They went home and checked out what Paul was teaching them. That's a good thing. Ed, is your hand up? That's basically correct. Mm-hmm. If you do, that's, uh, that's, that's correct. That's not good. Um, but anyhow, I, I, I just came back and I was saying that. No, I, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You do not find, I mean, I you know, wrote a book on that dealt with Islam, so I, I know the Quran does not say anything like what we just read. Take the prophecies of Muhammad and test them. It doesn't say that. All right, so that's, that's good. Now let's talk about the other aspect of it. The second example he uses of, 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 of potentially questioning this, uh, excuse me, quenching the spirit, notice how he puts it. <clears throat> I, I made it too mild. Hold fast what is good and reject that which is harmful, evil. You know, reject that. So, 
you know, you you can follow this how you can quench the spirit, but you can quench the spirit by choosing. And that that's in, is an intentional aspect of that. Let's take the, the second one first. Abstain from every form of evil. Hold to what is good. So I, why do you want to put hold what is good first and abstain from evil? Because it's like, it's, it's well, I don't have a coin. But let's pretend, let's pretend this is a coin, okay? I mean, it isn't. It's round. But suppose this is the coin. You have one side of the coin, hold fast to good. Other side of the coin, abstain from evil. You can't do the one without having the other. You follow me? So when he says that, he's saying, hold fast to what is good, abstain from evil. Those two things are inextricably linked. They're the flip side of the same coin. Okay, let's take them apart. Hold fast to what is good. That, that phrase, hold fast, that was just good. Hold fast is a verb that means like hold on to it like glue. Be glued to it. And then abstain, conscious, willful, intentional rejection of evil. They go together. Because if you are choosing evil, you're, I mean, it, and th- those verbs, there's a willfulness, there's an intentionality about that, that will quench the Spirit's work in your life. That's common sense to me. But let's talk about this a little further, a little bit more deeply here. And I've talked this way before. You come to faith in Christ, whatever age you are, unless you're about four, but you come to faith in Christ. You have a past. Now, from God's perspective and the way God looks at you, and I'll take myself as an example, when I came to faith in Christ in 1972, I had a past. Okay? And all that was a part of my past is still here. But God said, when I put my faith in Christ, God said, I declare you righteous. In my eyes, you're righteous. And I have now filled you with my Holy Spirit. But what's still present in my life? All of the past junk. I'm forgiven of it. I'm cleansed of it. But it's still there. The habits that were part of my life, the patterns that were part of my life. So I come to faith in Jesus Christ. What I have to do, and this is the language of the New Testament, I have to intentionally put off all that stuff and put on that which is new. So what does that mean? That means I have to start to reject and break those habits and patterns and replace them with new habits and new patterns. How long does that take? That doesn't happen overnight. Remember, it's the difference, and I wrote it up there dealing with the Spirit. It's the difference between my position and my practice. I'm acceptable to God, and he can walk with me and all the wonderful benefits of that relationship because I have been declared righteous, because I've appropriated Christ's work to my life by faith. But now I have to practice that. And I still have all that old junk. So to abstain from evil is I'm starting to put that stuff behind me. 
and I'm starting to hold fast like glue to that which is good. I'm breaking the old patterns and habits and replacing them with new patterns and habits. That's how we have to look at this. Because we, it's, I just, it makes my, my flesh crawl. I sometimes hear guys, even some of the televangelists, they talk about, come to Jesus, just everything's going to be great. Tomorrow you, you wake up a totally new person. That's absolutely correct. You will wake up a totally new person. You're righteous in Christ. But after you're awake for about an hour, you have a cup of coffee, all of those old patterns and habits are still going to be there. And that's why Paul talks about the struggle begins. First Corinthians, or Romans chapter 7, the struggle between the old and the new. Before you came to Christ, there wasn't any struggle. Now the struggle. And the longer you're walking with the Lord, the more you say, I don't want to go back to that old stuff anymore. So what you want to do is you want to be in a pattern where you're not quenching the Spirit. You're allowing Him to do what He wants to do, which is transforming you. So I'm learning to abstain from evil and hold fast to what is good. That's transformation. And as we've said zillions of times, that's a process. So talk to me if you don't get what we are saying. This, is, this, is, this isn't rocket science, but it's one of those things we just have to keep reviewing and reviewing and reviewing and reviewing. Why do I still struggle with the past? Because I'm a sinner saved by grace. But I am a sinner saved by grace. The past is gone. Behold, the new is in front of me. But I still have the yes, but you're putting that behind you. It's behind you as far as God is concerned. But you and you're starting to break those patterns and habits. That's what Paul is talking about here in this magnificent couple of verses. Okay? Want to talk about it? Push back? Uh, I was in Texas with some other salesmen from all over our company last week, and I sat next to this guy and had lunch with him, and he didn't know him. And, and I know he used to be a pastor in Lincoln, and then he um, he's not now, he's working for us, but there's nothing bad about what happened. But I said, but he, I asked him when he found the Lord, he said, I found the Lord in prison. Mm. And he said that uh, I was a meth dealer in California. Goodness. And he said that uh, another person in prison shared Christ with me. And he said it was the craziest thing. He said it took it all away from me. And I, I got in the word right away because you'd be in prison. You'd have a lot of time on your hands, you know. He said that I started reading the word and it just took it all away from me. Mm. And he went to seminary. He's just really a great testimony. But he said, I said, I've heard so many people say people who are on meth selling it or being addicted by it, you can never get off of it, even as it's hard for even anybody to get off of it. But he said he took it away from me completely. Mm. But Fantastic. He's a fine, mm-hmm. he's a fine gentleman. But, mm. but uh, he said that it just, it just uh, he said he'd be pastor of the church with somebody else for about 10 years and then. And then, you know, the ministry took too much time away from his kids, and he didn't want that to happen. And, and they're different for everybody, but he, so he, he's, he's a salesman for us now. So he's in Denver, but mm. 
but uh, just interesting. Yeah. Have any of you read the book Unbroken or seen the movie? It's mm -hmm. out now. The movie, yeah, read the book first, right, then go yeah. see the movie. Because right. the movie's terrible. I mean, the movie is great on, on the stuff during World War II and, and being a prisoner, but it misses, the movie leaves out the most important thing in his life, which right. is just unbelievable to me that she got away with that. Uh, Angelina Jolie produced the movie, but when you read what happened to that man uh, it's what's his last sentence it starts with a z i can't remember zapparino zapparino when he came to fa he he was a mess i mean you know if you know anything about his life he had been a runner and uh, an incredibly gifted athlete and all that got into world war 2 was captured uh, in, a, in in a horrific condition in japanese prison camp and so on it was released and the bitterness he felt in his heart was all consuming I mean, it just absolutely, absolutely was destroying him. And I, uh, I forget the exact year, but he went to uh, one of Billy Graham's early crusades. His wife had him encouraging him to do that. I think he went once, and then uh, kind of pushed back. He went, and finally, I, I like to put it, he gave up. And there, just like your friend, he was absolutely transformed overnight. I mean, he was he was into alcohol, into tobacco all kinds of stuff and it just he was cleansed of it and he was able to go back to japan seeking the guy who was head of the the prison camp and so on because he wanted to forgive him i mean that's just you know what a, what a turnaround and that's the kind of transformation that happens where the where where all that had been a part of your past god's taken care of it and he still struggled with things, but goodness, what a transformation. And that's why I was so frustrated with the movie, because she is leaving out the most important part of this man's life. <laughs> and to tell the story, which is a great story of being in the Olympics and being in the, in the World War II and all that. But <clears throat> Pick that book up for 1095. Terrible. <laughs> And it's, I'll tell you, I'm not going to keep the cushion uh, retail on, on the service, but um, anyhow, I don't know that you guys would be able to put it down. I showed it to a World War II guy, and he read it in about three days. It really, it's impactful. It is. All right. Let's conclude the book of First Thessalonians. Now, I'm in verse 23, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. What's that mean? Sanctify. That's the process. That's the process word. May, may God, the God of peace, complete his work of sanctification in your life. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? That takes you back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. When Jesus comes back for his church. When we went through that, I talked about John 14. Jesus said, I'm going back to the Father, guys. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, but I am coming back for you. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is, may God, the God of peace, 
complete his work of sanctification so that you are ready completely, totally, spirit, body, and soul for Jesus when he comes back for you. Why, why, why utter that kind of a prayer? To give them hope. God is at work in my life. I put my faith in him. God is at work in my life. He's going to complete his work. Yes, sir. This is going to be the reward for following the instruction of the right? Yes. Yes, this is a, the word that's used to that event is usually the word rapture. That's right. And that is, um, that is let, let's put it this way, Woody, because I know what you said and I know the, the words you said, but the only thing I push back on, you're making it sound like it's conditional for Jesus to come back to you, for you. It's not conditional. He is coming back for you, Period. He, Paul, who's writing this, is trying to motivate you and me to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in our lives as we are preparing for that. You see, uh, okay. Yeah, I, well, I know. I just, I, it, it's, in other words, I just want to make sure, because I know, you, I know, because we've talked about this. I know what you believe in this. I just want to make sure... It isn't, Jesus is coming back for you, period. It's not conditioned. Well, if I'm not good enough, then maybe he won't come for me. You're good enough because of what we discussed earlier. Romans chapter 6, you have been declared righteous. You are righteous in God's eyes. He is in the process of conforming you into the position that you already are. So that your practice becomes your position. That's the process. Okay. I have a question. John, please. The way this is phrased, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming. Does that mean upon the coming or when when the Lord, the the use of the word at there? Yeah, at or upon or at the time of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Kept blameless, does that mean, it means that, you haven't backslid or anything like that, or or um, what does again kept blameless? Uh, how do you translate that? Um, what I, what I'd like you to look at and, and compare is the phrase at the beginning of verse twenty three: "Sanctify you completely," with the phrase "be kept blameless." Um, That's tied in. Those things are tied. In other words, yeah. you are you are blameless in God's eyes because you've been declared righteous. You follow me? Yeah. That that that's a given. So when he says kept blameless, this is your position. So may God complete His work of sanctification in your life, that it is in conformity with the position which you already have in Christ. That's that's a nuance, but it's important nuance. In other words, what is not 
acceptable is to say, well, if I'm not blameless, then he's not going to come back for me. That's not what he's saying. You are blameless. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. He is in the process of transforming you so that what you are is what you are becoming. I hope that makes sense. Sounds a little funny, but that's exactly what he's saying. This is to be understood, it meaning this whole verse, verse 23, is to be understood as a magnificent confirmation that God is at work in your life. Transforming you, or in, I put it even another way, in the process of transforming you into the position that you already are in God's eyes. Does that sound funny, or does that make sense? It might sound funny, but it should also make sense because that's, that's the difference between, and I don't mean to get theological, but that's just the words that Paul uses. That's the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is the declaration of righteousness because I put my faith in Christ. Sanctification is the process of God conforming me into the image of his son. That's God's work in my life. All right? I think your silence means understanding. Now, we have about eight, nine minutes. May I begin Second Thessalonians? Thank you, Joe. Joe has given me permission to begin it. And when Joe gives me the permission to do anything, I go with it. So I want to start the book of Second Thessalonians, and in your notes are just some introductory things here. Let me get those on the table, and I want to tell you the story, and then tomorrow we'll start into the text. The book of Second Thess- Thessalonians was written after First Thessalonians. There's something profound, isn't it? <laughs> it's a second letter written about 18 months or so after the first letter. Paul is still in the same city. He's down in Corinth. Now, the map I gave you at the beginning of this study of Thessalonian letters, just refresh you. Thessalonica is up here in what's then called Macedonia. Corinth is down here. Paul's down here. He keeps hearing about what's happening up here. He writes another letter. It's around, oh, AD 51 or so. And we're not, can't be a exact and precise because we don't quite have all the information but it's very close to AD 51 or very close to this let me tell you what got Paul upset he hears that in the Thessalonian church somebody has started to teach that the day of the Lord has begun now, if you remember when we studied chapter 5 in 1 Thessalonians, that phrase came up. It refers to, it's kind of a phrase, it refers to the end time series of events. So in other words, somebody was saying the last days have started. In effect, the raptures occurred and things have gotten started. And Paul says, wait a minute, that's not right. Now, why would they think that? And we'll see this in the first chapter next week. This little church is really being persecuted. This church is really, the the Roman government and the local Jewish population is really taking out after these Christians. And it's really hard for them. Well, 
end time teaching says there's going to be a lot of persecution and a lot of people being martyred for their faith. So somebody said, let's put those two together. See, we're in the last days. And Paul just fires back. There was a second thing that was resulting from this. Because some people were teaching this, a group of people in the church sold everything. And they put on white robes and they're in the hills outside of Thessalonica waiting for Jesus to return. And they were taking welfare payments from the church. I put that in 21st century language. But I mean, they were depending on the benevolence fund of the church. You know what a your church has benevolence funds? You know what I'm talking about? So, I mean, what they were saying is they were taking what these people were saying and they're saying, Jesus is coming back. His second coming is almost here. So we're selling everything. Quitting our jobs, and we're going we're gonna, to, the food that we need to eat, we're going to get from the benevolence fund of the church. And when Paul hears that, that does it. I mean, he just kind of becomes, he becomes enraged with righteous indignation, and he writes this letter. And it's helpful because he tells us there are three major signs that the day of the Lord is here. And that's what we're going to look at in chapter two. It's very, very helpful. And then the second thing he does is he says, listen, if those people who are up in the hills on those white robes have chosen to do that, you owe them nothing. Don't give them money out of the benevolence fund because they believe false teaching and they're acting incorrectly. And if they don't work, they don't eat, quote, unquote, from Second Thessalonians. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? Now, what some people do is they say, well, therefore, there should be no welfare. That, you're transferring a biblical concept to a political program. I'm not sure we should do that. But the point is, Paul, is, Paul really said, you people don't understand what I've been teaching. So he goes back and reviews some end-time teaching. It's really helpful. But you see something here. Teaching about anything in the Bible should affect how you live. So if somebody is teaching error, it may result in an error-filled life. You follow me? That's what was happening. Taking something that's true. There is an end-time block. 27% of the Bible is about end-time teaching. So that's important to God. He wouldn't explain that much to us. And so it's important. But if somebody's teaching it incorrectly, and it affects how you live, because doctrine affects how you live, and somebody's teaching you error-filled doctrine, will it affect how you live? Yes. So you had people responding to teaching and doing something that they shouldn't have been doing. So Paul issues two major correctives. One is correcting their end-time teaching, and two is how it is affecting how they live. And this is the bottom line. If I knew Jesus Christ was coming back for me in six weeks, how does that affect how I live? What's the answer to that question correctly and biblically? It should not affect how you live because you are living (laughs) with the anticipation that he's coming back. You follow what I'm saying? Now, if somebody says, Jesus is coming back, you better, you, better start, you better change how you live. Oh, no, I already am living with tiptoe expectation he's coming back. I'm not going to change uh, uh, an iota of what I'm doing because I'm already living with that. 
That truth is what keeps me going. That's the blessed hope of the church. So I, I'm trying to introduce this in a way that's going to want you to come back next week and hear what he's saying. But if you don't understand the big picture of why he wrote this letter, you miss the point. So it's a great corrective, but it also is reminding us that sound doctrine did affect how we live. And the sound doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ means I should be living with that truth always in front of me. When I was, I told you, I know you've heard me say this, at least I think you have. My mother, when I was a little boy, my mother used to say to me, Jimmy, do you want to be doing that when Jesus comes back? Now that's, a, that's motivating, you know, I, I despised her saying that because it would always make me, oh, that, that was true. That's a mother saying that to a little boy. But Jesus is saying to us, and you look at Matthew 25, he has taught them about end time stuff and he says to them, now listen, these are the two application points. I've taught you end time doctrine. Here are the two applicational points. Be ready and be faithful. He tells a series of parables. Be ready. You don't know when I'm coming back. Be ready. And second, be faithful. Be faithful. I've given you a job. Be faithful and kind. You're a father. Be a faithful father. Your husband. Be a faithful husband. You're in your church. Be, be faithful. Those two things. So what was happening was these people were hearing something that was wrong, and they were they were not being faithful. And they really weren't being ready because the teaching is you keep doing what you've been asked to do until Jesus comes back. Don't change your behavior because Jesus is coming back. You're to be living as if he's coming back in the next second. And that's what he's going to... It's a wonderful little book. It's only three chapters, but it's a wonderful little book to remind us that end-time teaching should affect how we live. And the point is... Be faithful and be ready. Okay? This is good. Father, we're grateful for our time. We, we've looked uh, in concluding that uh, little treasure of 1 Thessalonians that uh, we are not to quench the spirit who indwells us. Um, and not rejecting what is being taught, but instead testing it. Making sure that is what the Word of God teaches. And choosing not not the ways of, of evil, but choosing to hold fast like glue to that which is good. Lord, we ask you too that you would help us to have the confidence and the certainty that the promises you've made to us, certainly that you will return for us, is kind of the center of our hope. And that should affect how we live. We're to be ready and we're to be faithful. And I just pray as we start Second Thessalonians, that's kind of the main theme of that little book, that you would drive that home. Help us to get some additional teaching about end times material, but also to know this is taught to us to have the practical purpose of affecting how we live, to be ready and to be faithful in doing what you're asking us to do. Be with these men in their very busy lives, all the stresses and strains of their lives. We pray you give them your peace, your grace. We pray for their relationships with family, spouses, children, grandchildren, etc., as well as their responsibilities in the workplace. As we always try to remember in our prayer time at the close, Lord, help us in all of those areas to represent you well. We pray this in your dear son's name. Amen. See you next week.